For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good. Let the recording note that Gyoshin has forgotten her glasses, and so she might do this once or twice. Huh. Um, <laughs> probably won't work. I'm going to start with a quote. Strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people. There is only enlightened activity. So that's a quote from Suzuki Roshi. He's the Japanese priest who uh, who's the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, which is kind of our parent temple. And I like this distinction. It's, it's easier for me to imagine enlightened activity than being an enlightened person, whatever that is. So, but maybe actually the two are almost the same because uh, one definition of enlightened person might be someone who responds appropriately to situations in life, which would be enlightened activity. But focusing on enlightened activity, for me, it means changing the way we think about our daily lives so that we're more outwardly focused and we're actively uh, looking for ways to help other sentient beings. And it also means looking for ways to avoid causing harm to other sentient beings. And uh, of course, every practitioner decides how to do that. And we can do it through our jobs. We can do it through lots of other ways like serving on our condo board or volunteering at an animal shelter. We can certainly do it in our private lives. Um, I think I'm safe in saying there are endless opportunities in everyone's life to choose enlightened activity. My understanding of the Buddhist view is that moral or ethical behavior flows naturally from mastering our ego and our desires and from cultivating metta, cultivating loving kindness, cultivating compassion. And the way we do this is through meditation, study, and hanging out with other people who are striving to do the same thing. So in other words, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But um, Buddhists also have guidelines for our behavior called the precepts. And uh, we have a ceremony called Jukai. And people formally become Buddhists in Jukai. And the heart of the ceremony is when the ordainees receive these precepts, which in our uh, Soto tradition are 16 moral or ethical guidelines uh, that are derived originally from the monastic vows uh, that were taken in the Buddha's time more than 2,500 years ago. And uh, they emphasize conduct to benefit other beings. So the precepts include uh, such things as a disciple of Buddha does not lie, does not steal, does not kill, does not speak ill of others, and so on. There's nothing too surprising in them for a list of moral guidelines, um, sort of what you'd expect. And then 
very much in common with the moral guidelines of most other religions. So the set of 16 precepts that we use in our Soto tradition were, were formulated by Dogen Zenji, uh, who's the founder of Soto Zen in the 13th century in Japan. And Taigen always cautions that they might sound like it, but the precepts of Buddhism are not the Buddhist Ten Commandments. So, so then what are they? <laughs> so I've heard them um, compared to training wheels, uh, which seems helpful to me. We, we move along with their support until we find our own confident, upright stride. And uh, for those of us who have not uh, yet realized enlightenment, which there are probably one or two in this room and in the Zoom room. Uh, so keeping the precepts could be seen as sort of a training discipline that helps us to live harmoniously with others while, while we're learning to actualize the Buddhist teaching. So um, in this view, the precepts describe the way an enlightened being naturally lives. And at the same time, the discipline of trying to uphold the precepts is part of being on the path to enlightenment. So I'm just going to quote a little bit from the Pali Canon, which are the earliest version of the precepts, because in the Pali Canon, they're described as gifts. Um, so they're talking to the monks. These gifts are pristine of long-standing, traditional, ancient, and unadulterated. And then he, now they're talking about the first precept, which is what I really want to talk about tonight. So they're talking about the precept. Uh, a noble discipline gives up the destruction of life and abstains from the destruction of life. And by abstaining from the destruction of life, the noble disciple gives to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. And by giving to immeasurable beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression, he gives himself, he himself will enjoy immeasurable freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression. This is the first of those great gifts. A disciple of Buddha does not kill. So according to the most ancient version of the precepts, they're seen as both beneficial to self and to other, which I, I really um, I really like that, the origin of, of the first precept. So, so we can understand this precept to mean a disciple of Buddha does not murder another human being, which seems pretty straightforward and <laughs> wouldn't get a lot of argument as a good ethical guideline. Uh, but, of course... It's not that easy or that simple. Uh, Norman Fisher is a, is a Zen teacher who, in keeping with the idea that the precepts are not rules or commandments, focused his attention on the positive side of the precepts as a way to work with them. So, for example, um, his version of the first precept is not to kill, but to nurture a life. So just to abstain from killing is, is not as big a commitment as working to nurture life, which could mean anything from devoting your life to being a physician or volunteering at a soup kitchen or tutoring children with special needs or 
hearing from the trees in your neighborhood. So endless opportunities, you know, for the eager Zen student on the path to enlightenment. But if we go a little deeper, we see that the first precept touches on some of today's most contentious public policy issues, such as war, abortion, capital punishment, euthanasia. Um, And it also suggests a vegetarian or vegan diet. And it even touches on such activities as weeding your garden or using strong chemicals to clean your home or letting your cat outdoors, which I pray you don't do. Side talk. Um, The public discourse on these topics is, um, as you know, divisive, contentious, and uh, and not very constructive. And uh, it doesn't usually even feel like discourse at all. Talking points really aren't uh, intended to find common ground or build understanding. but to score points. So we live in this toxic atmosphere. So I want to quote um, one of my favorite Zen teachers, Robert Aitken. He, he wrote about the first precept in his wonderful book, The Mind of Clover, Essays in Zen Buddhist Ethics. He said, there are many personal tests of this practice, from dealing with insects and mice to capital punishment. So that's what I want to talk about, what Aitken Roshi refers to as personal testing. And um, so I've sat with this precept. I think that's basically the idea of precepts. We're not seeing them as rules that we follow, but uh, more as koans, so questions that stretch our minds if, if we give them our time and our attention. So um, we sit with them, we live with them, we work with them. Basically, we come to terms with them. And, um, you know, I've taken these vows a number of times. um, And I was sincere when I took the vows. I didn't have my fingers crossed behind my back. But um, I was also pretty sure that I would break the precepts, at least some of them. And, uh, in fact, I... I think sitting with the precepts is an explicit invitation to explore our individual weaknesses and work on those because different precepts are more challenging to different people. So you might look at them and see which ones um, you, you invite you to sit with them. So, um, As I said, it's not a matter of following or not following rules because, I mean, we're not worried about being a good Buddhist, but just appreciating the gravity of the issues that are raised by the precepts and and figuring out how to apply it in our lives. So a personal decision we each make every day with respect to the first precept is what we choose to eat. And uh, vegetarianism or veganism, these are solutions for many people, but certainly not a black and white issue. Um, It's virtually impossible for me to envision a way to eat that does not involve killing. Vegans try to avoid all animal products, 
But um, that's not really as simple as it might sound. It's, it's like not a choice between sausage pizza and kale. Um, and if we really think about it, we can see there's, there's no possible way to eat without taking the lives of other beings. Uh, when strict vegans eat grain and tofu and beans, most of these are produced in sterile monocultural farm fields. Now, the word sterile and monocultural, these are words that mean everything but the chosen crop is deprived, deprived of a way to live. And often uh, pesticides are used to maintain um, those sterile monocultural fields. And even organic uh, farms that avoid poisons, they've destroyed natural habitat to make a farm field. And they require a lot of water that deprives um, other beings of water and can cause great harm. So there's no escaping the fact that we humans, Buddhists or not, are animals. And we need food in order to live. And food is living beings. It doesn't make sense. They're not, it's, we're not eating rocks. <laughs> so it doesn't make sense to, um, to see this as something bad. So Joseph Campbell quotes the Upanishads on this. So the Upanishads are the foundation of, of Hindu philosophical thought. Um, oh, wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Oh, wonderful. I am food. I am food. I am food. I am an eater of food. I am an eater of food. I am an eater of food. I am the poet who joins the two together. I am the poet. I am the poet. So in my own long consideration of this question, I think the, I think the only thing to do is to calibrate our choices consciously to what seems possible and practical and okay to you as an informed eater. So I've been a vegetarian twice as long as I've been a Buddhist, in fact, more than 50 years, most of my adult life, but I don't always avoid all animal products. I, I put milk in my coffee often, I sometimes eat cheese and yogurt, I eat chicken eggs occasionally, and I'm telling you this to put the rest of these comments in context. I do agree with Gary Snyder. Um, his assessment of how food is produced in our time, usually called the factory food system. Here's what Snyder says. The attitude toward animals and their treatment in 20th century American industrial meat production is literally sickening, unethical, and a source of boundless bad luck for this society. Snyder's not a vegetarian, um, but he writes compellingly about respecting both the life and the death of the animals that um, he's chosen as food. Uh, whether it's the chicken he's raised or the deer he's hunted. And uh, he says in the factory food environment, animals are treated like meat, even when they're alive uh, and are in fact deprived of any life. So, and, uh, 
you know, it's not only meat we're talking about in terms of the first precept. So here's an example. We can offer many. Uh, most vegetarians eat nuts as a source of protein. I do. But the almonds we've served in our temple kitchen are extremely water-intensive crops that require um, a large percentage of the water supply of the drought-stricken California Central Valley. So it might be time for ethical people to consider passing on almonds. Um, so is it meaningless to make a vow to not kill um, when um, seems to be impossible to do that? And does, does that make the whole ceremony of Jakai less powerful? So I'm going to go back to the mind of Clover. Aitken Roshi wrote, doctrines, including Buddhism, are meant to be used. Beware of them taking on a life of their own, for then they use us. So here's the origin of this talk. Recently, I was contacted by the Dharma Voices for Animals, a not-for-profit organization. They um, describe themselves on their website as committed to practicing the teachings of the Buddha and to speaking out when the actions of the Dharma community and the policies of Dharma centers lead to animal suffering. Um, here's a direct quote from their website. We want to be the voice of the animals who cannot speak our language. We speak out about the harm we cause other sentient beings when we eat them, use their body parts as clothing, or use products that are tested on them. So, a woman from DBA contacted me about the food policies of Ancient Dragon, and she said she wanted to help our Sangha find their way to veganism and that they have lots of resources to offer. And uh, uh, she offered recipes, information about vegan alternatives to you know, cheese and eggs and so forth, links to films and posters and podcasts and so forth all in a Buddhist context. And she was very sincere and very friendly and also a little aggressive. And I explained we're not currently serving any food because uh, of COVID and that we've always served vegetarian food, mostly vegan. Uh, and I was unaware at the time, uh, Asian told me, but I was unaware at the time that our board had already decided that going forward, all of our meals would be vegan. But anyway, that's how I decided to focus this Dharma talk on this topic so we could have a little discussion about it. So I'm going to just repeat my earlier contention. My understanding of the Buddhist view is that moral behavior flows naturally from mastering our ego and desires and cultivating loving kindness and compassion. It doesn't flow from being made to feel guilty. And I can't believe that flows from seeing pictures of animals being abused. Quite a number of years ago, in another sangha during Thanksgiving, uh, I was subjected to an extended, detailed, gruesome description of the treatment of turkeys by our agricultural system. I've never come closer to running, screaming out of a zendo. Um, but the intention of that teacher was to convince people to be vegetarian. To me, it felt like porn. And I felt like a victim myself. And having said this, 
I think it's true um, that it's way too easy to ignore the fact that our choices have consequences for other beings and that the production of meat in our country is an abomination beyond what we can even imagine. The first person I knew personally who was a vegetarian was a man named uh, Joseph Schwartzbaum. He's a quirky artist, lived in Hyde Park, Polish-born Jew, who had spent much of World War II in Auschwitz. And he was a strict vegetarian at a time when this was, uh, it was uncommon. Um, it's even sort of abnormal. And when we asked him about his diet, he just said he couldn't abide killing, which he'd seen a lot of. And uh, he hooted at what he called the American concept of a kosher pickle, since to him, the word kosher was all about corrupt rabbis profiting from killing innocent animals and duping naive housewives into thinking they were doing something holy. <laughs> Joseph was fierce. Um, so Ruth Seki was here in Chicago on Friday, and she was talking about her wonderful new book, The Book of Form and Emptiness. She's a Zen priest. She's a friend of Tigan's, and her first novel, published in 1998, was called My Year of Meats. And uh, so I looked up an interview in Lion's Roar uh, with her about my year of meats. And uh, this is her description of her process of understanding this issue. Quote, I started to research the industry. What I found out sickened me. The mechanized cruelty of our factory farm operations practice on such a massive scale here in this country defies comprehension. This is not old McDonald's farm. This is the foul reality behind the illusion of wholesome, meat-fed Americans that I've been hanging on to for consolation. This is the dirty secret, so brutal and wrong that the industry keeps strictly concealed, knowing that this volume and extremity of carnage is guaranteed to ruin appetites. Yet, in the, at the back of my mind, I've always known about the treatment suffered by these animals, the devastation that meat-based food economies wreak on the environment, the toxic conditions in the feedlots, and the pharmaceutical abuse that is produced, uh, that is practiced to fatten the animals rapidly and keep them alive long enough to bring them to slaughter. It brought tears to my eyes. I think it opened my heart. So as Ozuki says, we're, we're desensitized to the suffering because uh, we cause, uh, because we have this constant exposure. The good news is that uh, meditation can help, uh, help us retrieve our feelings. I think this is one of the primary benefits of, of meditation. We can walk through the world um, seeing more of what's actually there instead of what we sort of program to see. So I'm going to give you a few more facts. Uh, UN report says the meat industry causes more global warming uh, than all the cars, trucks, SUVs, planes, and ships uh, combined in the world. Production of a meat-based diet requires more than 10 times the water required for a vegetarian diet. The runoff from factory farms pollutes 
rivers, streams, and lakes more than all other industrial sources combined. These are compelling facts, uh, even beyond those of animal suffering. So if this idea of changing your diet is appealing, one suggestion is to try easing into it, you know, have a vegetarian meal every now and then. I think it's better to begin by taking animal products out of your diet incrementally than to uh, not to begin at all. A few years ago, Thich Nhat Hanh um, outraged the vegan world by um, suggesting that everyone reduce their meat uh, income by, intake by um, 50%. I mean, he was a vegan, but um, he seemed to know that that was sort of a workable idea rather than telling everyone uh, to go vegan. I think he was a, a pretty uh, practical fellow. So um, just one more thing. I sometimes hear people say they're carnivores. That's not accurate. <laughs> Biologically, uh, some animals like horses, giraffes, rabbits are herbivores. They eat no meat. Some animals like lions and polar bears and sharks are carnivores. And some animals like raccoons and crows and humans are omnivores. And when I say biologically, I mean their teeth and their digestive systems determine their diet. So uh, cats are obligate carnivores and must eat meat. They can't digest plant material well, and they require essential nutrients um, that only they can, they can only get from meat. So don't feed your, feed your cat peanut butter. Um, humans are omnivores. We have uh, a lot of different kinds of teeth. We have molars and we have incisors and so forth. And our digestive systems can handle a wide variety of food. We can't eat wood like termites can, uh, but we can eat uh, a lot of different things. So we're not required by our anatomy to eat meat. It's our choice. Lions are carnivores. They, have, they don't have a choice, and they don't need to meditate on the question. So um, I'm almost done. Uh, I'm, I'm moved to make a political statement in clothing, closing uh, because I've heard people um, use scriptural justifications for last week's contradictory decisions uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court on gun control and abortion. Uh, and in my view, uh, this makes no sense, except to someone uh, who sees a way to make political gain by claiming uh, false moral high ground. So uh, I look forward to our discussion. It looks like we have about 15 minutes for that. Thank you all. How do you handle discussion? You'll recognize people on the screen. Yeah, um, if people online raise their hands, I can I can be their Great. proxy to let you know. Okay, put my mask back on Yes. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, something that 
I think about a lot, and we've heard different opinions on. Uh, I would love to um, to to weigh in on is um, you know when we talk about killing uh, in terms of our diet, you know we're talking about animals and and uh, I perceive that plants are also living things, and why why do we treat plants differently um, in terms of like killing? Um, and I, I realize obviously that humans we all need to eat, um, but I wonder like well why is there a distinction or you know what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a really wonderful question. I love it. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that. And I, re- I remember in a very early uh, visit I had to Ancient Dragon, gosh, this is probably 15 years ago now, somehow someone was talking about gardening, and Tygen said in his um, Tygenish way, you know, he really hated pulling the weeds out of the garden. It just broke his heart. <laughs> Killing those, whatever he was pulling out. I thought, well, that's what a lovely person. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as I said, we cannot get around it. We are animals and we are living things. And living things, if you're not a plant, if you are a plant, you make food through photosynthesis, through sunlight and water and so forth. And we know that chemical reaction, and you don't have to eat anything. Uh, uh, but uh, there are a few plants that do eat insects and so forth. But if you are not a plant, you cannot make your own food. That is the way the world works. Food comes from the sun through plants to the rest of our very dynamic uh, globe. Um, and you know, we, we don't eat rocks, we don't eat dead things, we must eat living things. And so that's exactly the kind of question I say. We have to sit with this and say, we do what's okay with us. And I quoted Gary Snyder, who had very strong feelings about some kind of meat eating and very different feelings about raising chickens or shooting deer, which he had uh, accepted into his... Uh, understanding of the first precept or uh, other you know, ethical guidelines. So we can only do that. We we need to come to terms with that. What I think, what I think is the only thing I would think is wrong is to not think about it, to avoid thinking about it, to pretend you aren't thinking, you know, it's pretend there's nothing to think about. <laughs> so I raise the question to just say, I think it's worth thinking about. If, and if, I mean, maybe you've got it all figured out, which is great. I mean, my feelings and thoughts about this have evolved over time and have, you know, uh, they're also different from one week to another. Um, But, uh, yeah, I I mean, if, (laughs) if you have a hard time, cutting up an onion <laughs> because you have a particular affinity for onions and so making this up. Yeah. Maybe you won't eat onions, but uh, you cannot avoid eating living things. That that is that is given. And, and just like I said, well lions don't have to meditate, they just have to eat meat because that's the way their bodies work. We we have to eat living things. That's that's the way life on Earth works. So anyway, thank you for that very sweet question. <laughs>
I mean, in some ways, the woman from the um, Dharma Voices for Animals, I hope I wasn't harsh on her, but I, I was I was I was sort of prickling with her because she seemed to have it all figured out. And I just didn't think it was that simple. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, it's it's actually maybe it's, there's a little more that than you're um, proclaiming. And maybe she's listening to this. Talk. I did tell her I was going to do a talk on this, so. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Aisha. So I'm going, I appreciate that you said that, you know, we should do what's okay with us. I'm going to offer a, a slightly dissenting opinion or just something to stir it up a little bit um, in that I've tried being vegetarian. It doesn't really work for me. And although, and it and it, it truly does bother me the to know about how we treat animals that that we eat as meat. But I we eat meat anyway, and it's it's a challenge um, because I don't feel that I can get a healthy diet for me eating as a vegetarian. I also live with someone else who does not want to follow this. So I have this compromise all the time where I'll make a vegetarian choice when I can. And then I, I, I can't, I don't always have the choice of what I, what's available or what I can eat. Um, but it's good to, it's good to get this reminder, even though, I mean, even if we all became vegan, it really wouldn't take away this this tension for the reasons that you're saying that we we eat living things and even if we weren't eating them our bodies are killing off all the things that are trying to kill us off all the time like i don't know what you mean by that like germs uh-huh yeah bacteria we can't, we can't not kill things yes we can't we can't and so so living means that so you know that, that some things will live and other things will not live. That is absolutely right. I don't see that as a dissenting opinion at all. Uh, in fact, but I do think it's not a question of you eat meat or you don't eat meat. I think there's a whole range of ways to eat meat or other animal products. Mm-hmm. And that um, uh, a little information goes a long way or even maybe more than a little information, to be an informed um, consumer of things that are less uh, horrifying than other things. So I have two cats, and as I said, you cannot feed your cats peanut butter. I've heard of people trying to feed their cats. That is unethical in itself, because cats need meat. That's just how they're built. Mm -hmm. But you can buy more ethical cat food than than less if you're an informed person. And, um, you know, so there's, there's cheap gross meat that's produced in ways that are way more offensive than other. And so we do have some choices. It's not just, and as I said, um, Thich Han said, well, just cut your meat consumption in half. That would, that would be fantastic if everybody did that yeah. and you would be all set. Yeah. <laughs> or just have a vegetarian lunch every day or every Thursday or whatever sure. you decide. So... 
I know I, I tried so hard to write this in such a way that I didn't sound like I was going to talk people into this. So much as just maybe we should just think about this and look at what we're doing and see if we're doing what is okay with us. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and not, pre and, you know, it's not like, okay, well, I'm just going to eat this because it tastes good and I don't want to think about it. That's what my mother used to tell me. I'd say, but mom, that, that was a chicken, and she said, I don't want to think about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't agree with that. <laughs> We're just so wound up in the web of life. You know, I do, I get a, I get a, a healthy choice lunch and like, you know, like the meal champ, they're just innumerable labors and ingredients go into somebody making that. Yeah, I, I don't know what a healthy choice life is, but as lunch, as lunch, lunch. Is, it's, you know, it's prepackaged. It's like, uh -huh. a, like a lean cuisine. Or, oh, I see. Yeah. Well, I mean, frozen. yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there's plenty of other things to decide what you're going to eat, whether you're you know, you have high blood sugar or high yeah. condition or you're overweight or underweight or whatever your issues are. The whole, our, our eating landscape is way <laughs> complicated. But usually the simpler, the better. So it's the fewer ingredients, you know, and the less pre-packaged. So usually that tends to be the, the you know, the healthier, the easier Anyway. But yes, but I, I don't see that as a uh, as a, a conflicting view. Yes. I see that Eve has her hand up. Oh, hey, Eve. Well, well Jeff has his hand up, too. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that, Jeff. You two can duke it out. Who would like to go yeah, first? Yeah, Jeff, go first. No, I, I must have pressed it on the stage. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm... Yeah, I was just going to say, um, so I have a friend that does eat meat, but he really pays attention to the provenance of the meat, you know, like um, I usually have Thanksgiving with his family and most Thanksgivings he's gone and actually, you know, gone to the farm. And I mean, one nice thing about Chicago is, you know, there is there are a lot of local farms and you can actually, um, you know, have a relationship with them and and see where your food comes from. And, um, and that's influenced me a lot. And so like, I, I mean, I do eat some meat and I do eat eggs, but um, I was wondering what you thought about, I mean, it does get confusing, like about the labeling, like for eggs. Yeah. So, you know, from what I read, like the certified humane label is better that it actually reflects you know, better treatment of the chickens as opposed to like some of the free range. They said they just like, they'll like open the door and let the chickens scratch like maybe one foot of dirt or something. Yeah. Well, are you surprised that, um, that we're being tried to be tricked into eating? <laughs> yeah, we're trying to, that someone's trying to trick us by <laughs> labeling things deceptively. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, it's like any other commerce, you know, it's, uh, they're trying to sell us stuff. So yeah, it, if, so my brother, one of my brothers now lives in Iowa uh, and his son has a farm and, they have farm animals who have a perfectly nice life, and then when it's time for them to be eaten, they get shot in the head, and that's that. And it's just a different thing from 
being in this whole life of right. Yeah, the fact. <laughs> yes. So there, and as I said, it's not just one black and white. It's a little complicated. But but you're right. Labeling is uh, deceptive. Labeling is everywhere. It makes uh, makes life hard. Yeah. Were you finished? Um, well, I just said one more story. Like when, when um, I I was um, having a lunch catered at, at a, a meeting a couple of years ago in 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 Pittsburgh, and you know there were people on the group that were you know concerned about where their food came from, and um, so uh, and the the. Um, caterer I went to did use local food and and when I told her you know people were concerned about where their food came from she actually sent me a video of the pigs like there were these you know piglets running around and happy looking um, and, <laughs> and uh, um, you know like some of the the um, I forget what it is but you know there's movies that have come out about about the um, the factory food chain, et cetera. And then there's that um, whatever poly farm place in, I think, Virginia, that's um, supposed to be a model for humane treatment of animals. And, and the, the video of the pigs she sent me did look like that. But I mean, I just thought it was interesting that, that now, you know, that, that that is possible and that that I think all the discussion about it from, you know, from all the way from from um, uh, from vegans, you know, to meat eaters, at least there's been more discussion about where our food comes from. And I think, you know, people are a little bit more open to, you know, to providing information about it. Yeah. And sometimes the, I find the packaging more offensive than the food because I could be given some, you know, tofu with whatever. And then there's, you know, three pounds of styrofoam and plastic and so forth, which mm-hmm. is going to go in the oceans and kill the whales. So, it's not, it's, it's yeah. really a whole, what, as I said, meditation, we would hope, will open our eyes to what we're seeing and not be in these little uh, uh, ruts of, you know, this is right and this is wrong. Like, let's just look at it and see what it is and be conscious of what our choices are and choose the things that we are okay with as best we can, which will probably never be perfect. 